Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. John Grisham, uh, you're uh, staring down at about uh, 850 books. Uh, you have, let's see, you, you've signed about, uh, what does that count over there? It's till 30. 30? Yeah. Gotta, so so you got a, few, go. got a few to go. You um, just said that you enjoy doing this. Why? Well, uh, for years I did not tour. I did not uh, leave the farm because I, I didn't have to. I, I told myself I didn't have to. And um, back in the spring when I published Camino Island, I thought it would be a good time to visit a few stores. I love independent bookstores and see the booksellers say thanks for, you know, all these years of support. Meet a lot of the fans. And um, somebody had the wild idea of doing a podcast at each stop with local writers. And we talked about it at Doubleday, and this idea sounded better and better. So... We did 13 podcasts back in June, and I thoroughly enjoyed that, enjoyed the bookstores, enjoyed touring for the first time in 20 years. And I said, okay, let's try it again. And so here we are. Do you think some writers uh, today are, are reluctant to, uh, to do what you're doing? Uh, well, I'm, I'm guilty. I, I didn't do it for 20 years. Um, I had one national tour with the Pelican Brief in 1992, one of, the, you know, one of those 35-city tours that uh, was not... Um, at all enjoyable and not at all productive and so I quit and about that time I realized I didn't have to tour uh, so I you know didn't do it I, I always went to the same five bookstores in Mississippi friends of mine I would go every year um, these were friends who I was close to and friends who had helped me with my first novel so I would do only five stores a year and uh, probably did that for 15 years and finally stopped doing that and um, you know it's easy to be um, reclusive and you know, I guess selfish with your time uh, but I, I think best-selling authors need to tour it's good for the business it's good for the it's good for the booksellers who are on the front lines trying to sell books and it's tough I and mean, it's tough selling books these days so happy to be here and having fun what do you find now that you're um, out on the road and, and meeting the readers, uh, uh, talking to people who are booksellers? Uh, are, are, we, um, are we reading more in a digital world? Do, do you find people are just as, uh, as um, excited about seeing you and reading your latest uh, and many other people that are writing today as, as ever before? Or has it changed a lot? Well, the people who show up are obviously book lovers. Um, and, and they're here because they love... Uh, books and they love their local bookstore and so um, the problem is there are not enough of those people you know I think as a, as a culture as a nation as a society we buy fewer books every year and read fewer books statistically I think the average American is going to buy and read fewer books each year and that's disturbing and uh, we've lost um, so many bookstores in the past 20 years um, and you know now we're seeing an upswing in independent bookstores so there is hope. There's, we're always going to have books, and we're always going to have bookstores because we all love books. Not all of us, but a lot of us love books. Uh, you, but you really have to worry about kids these days uh, because they're so distracted with 
uh, social media and tons of television and video games and things that we didn't think about 25 years ago. And so you, you wonder how much they're going to read. At the same time, you have some children's authors who are doing very well. I mean, um, the, you know, they're selling tons of books. So if you talk to people like me, I'm 62 years old, um, you know, I'm worried about the future of publishing and reading and all that. If you talk to some of these millennials uh, who are in publishing, they're very excited about it because there's so much stuff to read on the Internet. There's so many online magazines. There's so many agents looking for work, you know, and, and every year publishing is going to have, you know, a whole batch of debut novels and publishing is always looking for the next bestseller. So I don't know. I'm not gloomy. I'm lucky, okay? I, I broke in 25 years ago, but um, you know, I'm still concerned about the future. And you said you're going to keep on writing as long as there are stories that uh, you want to tell and that there are stories that are out there. Well put. That's what I said. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I, I, when I catch myself someday writing a story I don't like, it's time to quit. Mm. Um, you know, I love, I love looking for stories. I love, I, it's still fun to write a book like The Rooster Bar, which is about for-profit law schools, something I didn't know existed until two years ago. And I was not too aware of the student debt crisis. You know, I, I knew it was there. I hadn't really paid any attention. And once I, you know, started researching, I thought, this is a, this is a mess. You know, this is a real um, injustice for schools to profit from students who have the dream of a big legal career. And that dream has been sort of pitched to them because um, some law schools that promise too much and provide uh, a legal education that's not that good to students who are unqualified, most of them. But the dream, the dream of a big career as a big lawyer, that's still very real in this country. And these kids get sucked into um, a lot of debt and then uh, an inadequate legal education and can't find jobs and can't pass the bar. I mean, that's, to me, it was an issue that just jailed overnight in the form of a novel. And that's, that's unusual. And you just said uh, issue. Uh, so there are issues that you think uh, can be fictionalized and at the same time exposed in a way that you want to make a statement. Exposed is, is the right word, uh, illuminated. Uh, you, I'm looking for exposure, not for myself, but uh, you know, first and foremost, I want to entertain. And if I can take an issue and wrap a legal thriller around it and tell a great story that people enjoy and expose them to things like capital punishment, wrongful conviction, insurance fraud, tobacco litigation, homelessness, uh, there are a lot of, there's no shortage of issues. What about what you did in, um, um, with coal mining? Uh, in the, in, uh, Mountaintop removal, uh, environmental disaster. So that's, that's still unfolding and has not been, um, has not been stopped at all. And in fact, well, only, it's about to get worse because of regulations. Sure, um, that's a great issue. Um, but that's, that's the world I live in. I, I, right now I'm thinking about issues such as, read the headlines. Um, the opioid crisis is a big, thick novel uh, because there's going to be some liability somewhere. Um, 
Mass incarceration is an issue that uh, I think about all the time. Uh, the great injustice in our, in our juvenile court system, uh, trying 14-year-old kids as adults, putting them in adult prisons, and on death row is another. Yeah, there, there's, there's no shortage of issues when, when you talk about criminal injustice. And that's why I get very frustrated because that's the world I live in and I know that we could fix things. We could fix things. We could, we could reform our, our criminal system, our penal system, most of our judicial system easily, save a ton of money, and eliminate a lot of human suffering if we would do it. But we don't have the political power to do it. So. You've written uh, nonfiction. You've written a memoir. Uh, have you thought about taking one of these issues um, like opioids or uh, environmental concerns and, and looking at it from uh, a nonfiction standpoint? No. I've done one nonfiction book uh, because I was so inspired by the story. Um, and that book took... Um, 18 months to research and write, which is a long time for me. And I don't have the patience to, um, to do the necessary research again. I'd rather create a fictional world and tell the same story. And just, you know, the, again, the opioid thing is, is front and center. Todd and I were flying in. He showed me another uh, op opioid story today in another magazine. I read it. I thought, you know, this is, this, the story hasn't come together yet. Yeah. But, you know, you see it here, you see it everywhere. And the, the, the effects of, of these painkillers and what they've done to us in the past 20 years. And th there's got to be one of the leading attorneys is a guy from Kentucky. Uh, been a, lot, a lot of lawsuits have been filed already and settled mm -hmm. against the manufacturers. But um, it still has, has yet to blow up. The, you know, the, the mass tort uh, litigation scheme has yet to come together. Uh, so, yeah, I, you know, that's what still keeps me awake at night. Uh, thinking about stories like that, thinking about two guys I met in Oklahoma 12 years ago who've been in prison for 30 years now who are not guilty. And I, I write them letters and send them money and, and um, you know, try to help them, uh, but they're probably not going to get out. It's a, it's a non-DNA case. There's no ironclad biological proof to, you know, spring them and we're trying, you know, we're trying. They have lawyers and we're trying, but um, they're, they're completely innocent. Um, so that stuff keeps me awake. Before a Rooster Bar uh, Camino Island came out, um, it was a little departure from uh, the legal thrillers that, um, that you've written uh, so well and, and, and been so successful with. Um, but it was about rare books, and, and you have an interest in that. Is that one of those things that you just... Uh, thought that it was time to write something about uh, a real passion of yours? Well, I'm always looking for a, uh, a non-legal story. And I've written uh, two football books, a baseball novel, uh, some kids' books, a nonfiction account, um, like a, a, a book of short stories. So I'm, I'm always, you know, writers do that. We, we, we write what we want to write, and then we, we dream about writing something else. And so um, it, was, it started off as a story about the theft of, it started out off as an NPR story about the um, real problem around the world of the theft of rare books and artifacts uh, from libraries mm -hmm. around the world because libraries typically are not that secure, especially when you got thieves who know what they're doing. And they, they'll, they walk out with books and pan, you know, priceless stuff. Mm -hmm. 
been some fantastic cases. Well, one was on 60 Minutes not long ago. And so that fascinated me. And so my wife and I were just kicking around this idea of a mystery about stolen books, you know, and that's how I got started. Yeah. Uh, but you're a collector yourself. Yes, I'm not a... Um, I'm not a serious collector, but I've been collecting for 25 years. Uh, you know, two or three or four books a year. Uh, some years, none. So I'm not, I don't, I'm not trading. I never sell. I just, you know, I hoard them. I collect them. Uh, but for, for Christmas coming up uh, next month, this is November, November 1st, um, my wife saw a book. We, we have a few dealers we deal with, and they send us catalogs. And she saw a book by Hemingway, first edition, that I don't have called Death in the Afternoon, one of his first books. And she said, do you want this for Christmas? And we have these conversations. And so that's how it gets started. Normally for Christmas, birthdays, anniversaries, or just surprises, if she, if she, the, the collectors will call her sometimes. They'll call me and I'll say, no, it's too, it's too much. No, I don't want that. Or I've already got it. Or, you know, then they'll call her. They'll, you know, they, they have her, for, her number. And they'll call her and, um, and she always buys them. So you know, I get them regardless. So that's how it goes. But I've got, you know, probably... Um, between Faulkner, Hemingway, Steinbeck, Fitzgerald, he only had five novels. Um, you know, probably 60 books. I'm, I'm trying to get all of them. Uh, I, I want one of each. I've got two copies of The Sound and the Fury. Um, one is in great condition, and one's in not so great condition. And the condition and the dust jacket and all that mean everything to rare books. So it's a world I know something about. And I'm fascinated about how you steal them, and then once they're gone, how, how you sell them if you're the thief. There's, yeah. a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a market for it. You included that. Well, and I did. And, and the, the fascinating thing about the research for Camino Island, I couldn't find anybody who would admit to knowing anything about the stolen rare book market. I mean, they clammed up so fast. So it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I saw you in an interview before you were invited uh, to Princeton to, uh, to the library to look at the, the original uh, Fitzgerald uh, manuscript. And, and, um, but, but you'd done all this research uh, without ever going to Princeton. In fact, I think you said that you were uh, advised not to let them know that you were writing the book. Yes. <laughs> I was determined not to go there to fake all of that to make it seem realistic, because only the people at Princeton know the truth, okay, that's a small handful, um, because I did not, I would never want to inspire someone to get some crazy idea about, hey, you, we can pull this off. It's not that easy. <laughs> we went a week How's ago. How's the security there? <laughs> well, they took us into, a last. we were there last Wednesday, and um, we walked in the front door, they, they, were, they, were, they were so charming and nice and happy we were there. But we started, they said, follow me, we're going to see the manuscripts. And we, Todd and I both realized we started going down, one level after another. And we were down, it's a beautiful library, they've got all the money in the world. It just finished a big renovation, so it's super nice. But we were like three levels down, and we came to this big conference room, and that's where they had the manuscripts. And the head librarian was there with two other librarians who were showing us around. Uh, Todd, me, and our publisher, so three of us on one side, and two security guards in the room with us, <laughs> and three outside. <laughs> we didn't see any weapons, but they were, in, you know, the, the coats and ties, they were perfectly nice, but they were watching us. I'm thinking, what are we going to do, pull a job here? <laughs> Beat somebody up, hit somebody over the head? Did, did they pull the original? I mean, did, did, you, did you touch it? 
uh, did you have gloves on, or is it in a is it encased in? It's encased. Uh, Every sheet of uh, uh, we saw Greg Gatsby, uh, this side of Paradise, which he wrote a hundred years ago at Princeton, on really cheap paper. He was a student. He bought the cheapest paper he could find, and number two pencils, and that's how he wrote. He wrote all of them that way. Mm -hmm. uh, he was always broke. He, he well, he made some money. He, he could make money writing short stories, but he burned through it so fast. It was always you know he's always broke. Um, but as a student, he was really broke, and um, so it's cheap paper. They, they realized in 1950 when they got the stuff, it wasn't going to last long, and so every sheet is encased in mylar. So you turn the pages, and he he pulled them out. Uh, well, I'm looking at the Great Gatsby, okay, the original, and and he's talking about this and talking about that. And we could have touched them if we wanted to, but I never I never reached. No, <laughs> I was afraid I might I might get shot. Okay. <laughs> no, <we didn't. laughs> <laughs> no, but I just, I didn't want to do anything, but it was, it was pretty, it was, it was, it was almost overwhelming to think, to think about what you were looking at. It was really cool. Uh, well, before we uh, uh, finalize, uh, our good friends at, uh, at Joseph Beth uh, Books um, uh, want you to get through these uh, before uh, your appearance uh, tonight on stage <laughs> with Sue Grafton. So I'm going to wrap this up in just a minute, but just finally, um, you're, you're doing this. You've been on a, a, a long uh, a book tour. You're finally going to go home. Uh, what, what do you, um, I think you, you mentioned one time you, you, you're trying to play a little golf here and there. Uh, what else do you do for? I'm thinking about retiring as a golfer. Uh, <laughs> I, I started 10 years ago at the age of 52, which is insanity, <laughs> to take up that sport, you know, at that advanced age because it's terribly frustrating. Um, I play some. I've played 10 times this year, which is um, I've been averaging about 30 or 40 times a year. So I realize, uh, to, you know, like anything else in life, you have to you have to take lessons and practice. And I don't really want to do that. I just, I just <laughs> want to go play, and so very frustrating. Will you give us a hint about what you're uh, working on next? I don't. Uh, I have not started. Uh, I start January the first on the next legal thriller and it, with the goal of finishing July the 1st. I, I allow myself six months and I get a lot of work done uh, January, February, March, April when the weather's lousy and all you can do is watch, you know, basketball. Um, and then finish July the 1st, uh, do the edits during the summer and finish it and be done with it and then by uh, Labor Day, I'm bored and looking for something else to write. Um, I have two ideas for the next novel, the uh, next legal thriller, and um, have not made the decision right now which one to write. So I have yet to have a serious case of writer's block. Um, in fact, it's oftentimes just the opposite because of what I mentioned earlier. When you watch the legal system and you see so many problems and so many issues and so many injustices, there's a lot of suffering, a lot of stuff to write about. Well, we um, thank you for this time. And um, when that boredom sets in um, and you want to just travel a short distance, uh, come back and see us in Kentucky. Love Kentucky. Love uh, uh, Lexington. Um, and really enjoy UK during basketball season. Don't always pull for them, but it's always fun, okay? It, it's, it's great to see a great uh, Tar Hill fans. Carolina, you know, Kentucky AIM, Kentucky and Louisville. Kentucky and Kansas. I mean, those are marquee matchups wherever they are. And so we, we watch a lot of basketball. Thank you for your time. My pleasure, Bill. 
Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Thank you.